Hey, go ahead and open up your Bibles and flip to the right of the middle. Uh, we're going to start in John 20, 19 through 21. John 20, 19 through 21. It'll also be on the screen, but uh, we're going to begin there and then migrate eventually over to John 15 in a, l- a couple of minutes. But uh, it's spring break. Congratulations. You made it midway through spring, and you guys are the true believers being here on Wednesday night for the capstone of Fuel for Life. We had that snowmageddon in the middle, and We've adjusted around it. So we're going to be talking tonight about how to make disciples. And since it takes the whole New Testament to demonstrate how to make disciples of Jesus, this is going to be a really long sermon. So get your popcorn, all right? Uh, If it hits seven for real, go ahead. If you need to jet, go for it. not going to hurt my feelings. You can walk out. I want to respect your time. However, there's no way in one night that we can comprehensively teach the how-to of disciple-making. If it were that easy, everyone would be doing it. But my hope... tonight is is that this can send us on the right path. We've got a ton to cover, and we're going to jump right in. So go ahead and read with me John 20, 19 through 21, and the Word of God speaks, and it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Pray with me. God, thank you for another day with breath in our lungs. God, thank you for beautiful weather. Thank you for an opportunity just to come and gather. Lord, I pray that tonight as we sit in this room that, Holy Spirit, you would move in our hearts and our lives and that you would motivate us and that you would give us a desire a passion to make disciples of your people. So Lord, I pray that you'd equip us in that. God, I pray that you'd give us insight and that Lord, that you would set us on fire for the glory of your name to reach your kingdom. So uh, just if you would for a second, go ahead and pray for yourself that God would teach you something tonight. So Jesus, we love you and we trust you. It's your name. Amen. What is discipleship? I mean, we all know it's important, but what is it? After the resurrection and nearing the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, they were gathered together. Those doors, they were locked for fear of the Jews, and they were having a committee meeting. So let me be clear. They had already been told that Jesus was alive and told that, they had come, that he had come back from the dead. And this news was delivered to them by an out-of-breath Mary Magdalene with a tear-stained face. But they did not believe her. Instead of going out, they, remem- they remained under lock and key in the comfort of false safety, enduring the tedium of what can only be assumed to be a long-range planning committee meeting. All right? And until that evening, Jesus came in and stood among them. And normally, friends, they knock, right? But Jesus does his Jesus things, and his doors are locked everywhere, but he poofs into the room and appears standing next to the disciples. And you know the disciples are startled. Because the first two sentences to them start with, peace be with you. Sandwiched between an interlude of an examination of flesh wounds and warm greetings. Jesus literally has just appeared to his disciples, but wastes no time in telling telling them the second sentence out of his resurrected mouth. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he tells them that he's sending them And it's the second thing he says, so obviously it's important. 
What is Jesus sending us to do? Anyone know? To make disciples. So I have a question for you. We're going to do a call and response for a bit. Can anyone give me a, the quintessential passage on how to do discipleship in the Bible? Where you can point to and part in parcel as spelled out step by step, showing the how-to of actually doing discipleship. Where should we go in Scripture when we want to be comprehensively instructed on how to do discipleship? Anyone want to take a guess, take a gander? Set. I've, I've got partial hearing loss of this year. What? Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus is giving instructions for life, right? Yeah, anything else? Anyone else? Matthew 20. Yep, yep. Great commission. Okay. Yeah, often and oftentimes. And another one, man, I, I think maybe even the closest one is 1 Corinthians 1, 11, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ, absolutely. But it doesn't give you the nitty gritty of the how, how you imitate Paul or Christ, right? It says what to do, but not how to do it. And passages alluding to discipleship in scripture generally tell you the who, the what, the when, the where, but do not include a step-by-step formulaic set of instructions of the how. And when you hear about making disciples, like you just mentioned, uh, often you see that the Great Commission is used as the main text. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And as Jesus is saying these words, we see him floating up away to heaven from his disciples. But I don't think that his disciples were shouting after him, Jesus, how? How do I make disciples? What do I do? Why not? Because they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They had seen it modeled for them. Let me let you in on a secret. I don't know of one comprehensive passage that includes the entire how-to of making disciples of Jesus. And I think there's a reason why. The how-to of discipleship is clearly echoed throughout the life and ministry of Jesus and the apostles. You see, the how-to of discipleship is demonstrated through the relationship of Jesus and his disciples throughout the entire New Testament. It's too complicated a topic to nail down by pulling out and cherry-picking just one passage to be the be-all, end-all, all-encompassing passage on discipleship. The how-to cannot be reduced and comprehensively included into one package and one passage of Scripture or one book of the Bible. Rather, the concept of discipleship is taught holistically throughout the scriptures. We learn the greatest example of discipleship by looking at Jesus and his apostles, right? His disciples, looking at their holistic demonstration of living out God's word in the stories of scriptures by how they interact with the people that they are discipling. So a couple years back, um, I challenged one of my uh, new leaders who spoke passionately about wanting to make disciples, to learn about discipleship, and, and, and I challenged him to look at each one of Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels. And Patrick got about halfway through the book of Mark before taking a sabbatical from his discoveries, which was a moderate effort because he started in Mark. But I digress. Uh, he asked him to do this 
because I, I asked him to do this because I wanted him to learn how Jesus made disciples and, and correct some preconceived notions uh, and, and misunderstandings. So here's the thing. In order to make disciples that look like Jesus, we have to know both what Jesus looks like and how Jesus made disciples. If you boil it down and take it to the core, discipleship is doing what Jesus did with people. If we don't know the scriptures, we will have a misunderstanding of discipleship. It's not something that you can wing and hope to do a good job. Why? Because when discipleship is done wrong, it creates misunderstandings of what discipleship actually is. More than any other word in the Christian lang language, the word discipleship has become the junk drawer word of Christian leadership. It's dangerously close to being uh, that word synergy, you know, the word that it can be defined essentially as whatever your boss wants it to mean that day. When people talk about discipleship, I've heard uh, them, them, them use the term in reference uh, towards being part of a service team on Sunday morning, which is sort of true, or in a small group, which is kind of true, or being part of a Sunday school class, which is partially true, or a substitute for the word evangelism or missions, which is incomplete, but also halfway true. But there's a problem here. Saying that discipleship is any one of those things by itself is reductionistic. At best, it's one of the aforementioned things that are included in a sum of its parts, but that, that make up the concept of discipleship. But when discipleship is defined exclusively by any one of these subcategories, it always results in an incomplete definition. It's true, these things I just mentioned, they are elements of discipleship. They're actions of discipleship, but none of the above encompasses the whole idea of what discipleship actually is. It's kind of like calling Will Smith a rapper. Will Smith, he was a rapper. He wasn't a very good rapper, and most of us still know the words to that Dove Award-nominated song, Getting Jiggy With It, right? na 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 That should be embarrassing for all of us that we know that, right? But Will Smith is not just a rapper. That's too that It's just too simplistic. He's also an actor, right? Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Anyone? He's a pitch man for commercials. He brands himself alongside extremely progressive social worldviews. And according to the last six months on my newsfeed, is known for it being in a very public and unusual and horrifically dysfunctional marriage with Jada Pinkett Smith. But do you catch the analogy? <laughs> Reductionism is guilty of elevating part of something to the meeting of the whole. Dude, how much confusion exists over the word discipleship? I want to lay out a working definition of discipleship. In the new Dan Robinson Bible Dictionary, the word discipleship is defined this way. Discipleship is accelerated sanctification caused by life-on-life -life relationships that are based on demonstration and instruction through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Most people will see you before they ever see Jesus. Before they read their Bibles on their own, they will watch you and see the effects of the scriptures in your life. Before they truly have a prayer life, they will come and, and watch and see how you pray. And for some of them, before they become a Christian, they will see how Christ changed your life. 
If you're a Christian, that means that you are called to make disciples, that make disciples, that make disciples, no matter the context. I don't believe there's a person in this room that either does not want to be a disciple or make disciples. We all want to follow the call of Jesus on our lives. But if we're honest with each other, and this is church, so we can be, we don't always do discipleship that well. Sometimes our great ideas, they just don't work out. You and I, we have preconceived notions of discipleship that have been taught to us that are neither wrong nor inherently evil, and yet at the same time, they are not biblical in the way that discipleship took, uh, took place according to what we can observe in the scriptures. Discipleship is often referred to as the interaction between two people that develops either the head, the heart, or the hands of a person, meaning that it refers to spiritual intellectual development, or a deep intimacy, spiritual, or spiritual intimacy, knowing of e- each other's hearts, or a training of someone to do the tasks of ministry, their hands. But the problem with these references to discipleship is when left by themselves, they do not emulate a biblical example of discipleship on their own. For the rest of our time tonight, we're going to talk about how not to and then how to make disciples. And one of the common pitfalls that people run into when they try to disciple someone is focusing only on the head or only on the heart or only on the hands. So the first point is this, discipleship is not giving someone a book to read. All right. I love theology, guilty as charged, okay? I love a good Christian book, so I've made this mistake before. Often after like counseling sessions or teaching or having theological conversations, I've had people ask me uh, for more information about a particular topic or where they could go to read and study about a particular subject, and I would give them a book from my library. And those of you whose faith is mentally driven, this also might be your response. But 100% of the time, I would have to chase them down for that book back, and it would be returned unread. Why? Over time, I realized that we were having the conversation because they asked to have the conversation rather than going through the process of self-initiated study and discovery in the first place. The reason why the book remained unread wasn't because they were lazy and I wasn't. It wasn't because that person lacked access for, in, or for or to information. We all have the internet and podcasts. You can go through most of seminary without even ever re- enrolling in a class. If those were the issues, the book would have solved the problem. But that's not the issue. It's likely that they didn't read because they didn't know how to go through the process of self-initiated study and discovery. They've never been taught how to do it on their own. Discipleship, it looks like spending your time, your effort, your energy to read the book with them and actually talk about it together. Jesus didn't just say, all right, boys, read the Torah and let me know your thoughts later. No, he sat and he explained the scriptures to them because they did not have understanding. We were meant to study the things of God in community, not just individually. And when we read together, we're loving the Lord with our mind together and build uh, and provide built-in accountability to one another and allowing for the opportunity to teach the other person how to be a self-feeder by showing them how to self-initiate both study and discovery. Number two, discipleship is not a, you know, a series of endless hours connecting at the heart level over coffee. Okay, So discipleship is not sitting at a cutesy coffee shop for hours uh, with an open Bible, sipping on a coffee cup while you speak about the deepest, most intimate things of your heart. Getting real, talking about life, 
as you stare intimately in each other's eyes. Let me tell you a secret. That's not discipleship. That's a date. In some circles, what I just said would be very controversial, but real fast, can anyone tell me one place in Scripture where Jesus had a one-on-one with one of the disciples? You always see Jesus spending time in, in doing discipleship in what? Groups. Now, I'm sure he had a one-on-one with his disciples at some point, but to my knowledge, Scripture never records this exclusivity. But we constantly see Jesus discipling in community. One time I had a guy, same guy that made it halfway through Mark, uh, who wanted me to disciple him. He, he texted me and said, uh, we need to be talking every day. No, we don't. No, we don't, right? I don't even have deep, intimate conversations with my wife every day. There's not always time. What he wanted was a long, deep, personal conversations constantly over coffee, and some of that is not bad. And I think it's a critical element of discipleship because discipleship is predicated on being able to trust that other person. But if it's the only thing you do, you're spiritually dating. (laughs) You're not doing discipleship. In discipleship, both quality time and quantity time are important. If you're not interested in spending your time on people, you're not interested in discipleship. If you cannot give away an hour or two of your time, how are we to expect to see the person we are discipling grow in giving their entire life away to Jesus? But if that deep intimacy is primarily what a discipleship relationship is built on, it's, it's, it's dangerous discipleship. The person you're discipling can and often does develop a spiritual codependence. They, they, they grow inside the hedge of protection of your walk with Jesus, and before long, you have intentionally become a savior replacement. Instead of turning to prayer, they call you first. And as disciple makers, we're not someone else's personal Jesus. We must push people to know Jesus personally. Number three, discipleship is not only inviting people to observe your life. So how many of us have heard it said that discipleship is caught, not taught? Think of both of us, right? And I think there's merit to that, but it's not really a either or proposition. It's both, right? If you think about it, you would never parent in that way. Only having your kids learn from you by following your example, but never telling them or explaining anything to them. Why? Right? Why? It would, it would crazy town in the house, you know? So have you ever... Have you ever been at a family reunion before and heard a uh, kid use a naughty word. So you're hanging around barbecue. It's 105 degrees outside and you're eating a hot dog and all of a sudden your nephew uses in the correct context a washer out with mouth out with soap type of a word and the parents are like, oh my goodness, where in the world did my sweet child learn this language? Well, it wasn't his kids, you know? One of the parents has a potty mouth and the child just sold them out. (laughs) They just learned something. They observed something. They replicated it right in front of the entire family. And the child caught that, that, that action of their parent and mirrored it without knowing what they were doing. And that's bad discipleship. If you simply do and never explain, I can guarantee you that they will learn through observation, but they may not learn the right things. And the people you're discipling may never know what you do or why you do it or how to do it without you. Discipleship is both caught and it is taught. And Jesus spent a lot of time demonstrating alongside of his disciples, doing the tasks of ministry together, healing the sick, feeding the poor, teaching, etc. 
But if Jesus did all of those things and never talked with his disciples about them, we would not have a New Testament. As they were going, as Jesus went, Jesus didn't only model what it meant to be to, to, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he also explained why. That's why his words are recorded. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did with his life. He poured out his life in a very specific way to 12 men. And those 12 men brought the gospel to the world. The greatest disciple maker the world has ever known is, in fact, Jesus Christ. He did not leave behind a bullet-pointed prehistoric sticky note, right, prescribing the step-by-step formula set of instructions on how to do disciples, but uh, do discipleship. But in, in John 15, 12 through 15, he, I think he clues us in to the way that he made disciples. On the night that he would be betrayed before Jesus and the disciples go out to the garden to pray, the Gospel of John records an exhortation and a reminder that Jesus gave to his disciples in chapters 13 through 17. And in the middle of his sermon, while having the Last Supper, uh, the the night before he, he, he went to the cross, Jesus reminds his disciples of his commandment to love one another as he has loved them. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And as he's speaking, Jesus reminds them of three ways that he's loved and led and discipled and as they've walked together through life. Number one, for all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus told them everything that he knew. Number two, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus, he gave them everything he had. Number three, I have called you friends. That word friends is all over this passage. Jesus considered his disciples his friends and has demonstrated his friendship to them through his life. And if we want to make disciples like Jesus made disciples, we must do these three things. We need to tell them everything you know, give them everything you have, and be their friend. There's a knowledge component. To, obviously to tell them everything you know. There's a knowledge component to, to discipleship. And Jesus told his disciples everything that he knew. Jesus imparted all of his knowledge to his disciples. And some of you guys may be thinking, Dan, if I told them everything that I knew, it would be a very short conversation. And that's okay. You don't need to be a theological giant. You just need to be faithful to do it. The first year as a youth pastor, Man, I began leading Bible study uh, verse by verse, exegetically through the book of Romans with my small group Bible study of junior high boys. Most ministry consultants would not advise that, all right? It's Romans and their seventh graders. Shouldn't work. Shouldn't work. They're 13-year-old boys. They have short attention spans. They get bored and they don't care about stuff, or so people say. 
And at around Romans 10, I was like, dude, I don't, do not know if this is working anymore. And I was thinking, I was like, should I change it up, change up the study, mix it a little bit, whatever, right? Hit, hit, and, and we hit chapter 10, verse 4, which says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And there was this moment, there was this moment when uh, the light bulb came on in the mind of one of my boys who had been there from the beginning. And this is like the funny guy in the group, you know? He's not the all-star youth kid that always volunteers to pray and read the verse. And he references back to Romans 4, which we studied months ago, and he makes connections between Abraham, the Israelites, circumcision, and how we are now under grace because Jesus has fulfilled the law so that we don't have to be under the law anymore. (laughs) Mind blown. Eddie was the last person that I thought was paying attention, right? So we ended up staying in Romans for a total of 20 months. But yeah, really long. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, man, it, 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 takes, it takes a while to grow fruit, doesn't it? It takes faithfulness and fidelity, long obedience in the same direction, oftentimes for fruit to grow. You've heard it said, uh, those who cannot do teach, mostly as either a cop-out or a joke of humble self-deprecation, right? Or depreciation. But that maxim, that maxim cannot be true of a disciple maker. If you never model, but instead you only teach continuously, the disciples that you are teaching will only see a great pontificator who lacks actionable substance. You will imply that obedience to God's commands becomes optional as long as you understand the information. But the discipleship includes doing what Jesus did with people. Not all teaching comes through Sunday school. Often the most effective form of learning is through an object lesson, with you being the object of demonstration. And we see Jesus do this in Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call, and I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus didn't just model eating with the tax collectors and sinners. He explained both to the Pharisees and his disciples why he did what he did. Jesus did not expect the disciples to simply observe his actions and imitate obedience. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus always told them the, 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 the answer to the question, why? The instruction part of discipleship centers around explaining the why of everything you do and know about life and godliness. When you do ministry... You do it in front of people, and you do it in front of people you're discipling so that they can learn from you. Let the people you've discipled watch and observe you doing ministry in action and then, then talk about it with them. Tell them what you did and why you did it, and then tell them to go do the same. But if you model but never teach and just have people around you all the time while you model the Christian life, you run the risk of people uh, that, that you're discipling mistaking you for a codependent extrovert or worse, that you're a super, super Christian that they could never be because they don't know how to do what they only see you do because they themselves were never told how to do it. Teaching always requires an explanation. 
And we must, most, we must both demonstrate and teach. I need some water just for a second. We must both demonstrate and teach. If you spend time, spend your time on life-on-life relationships, demonstrating the gospel with your life and carefully giving instruction on how to follow Jesus, the natural effect should be that people you are discipling grow, they, they grow in love for the Lord. Discipleship should accelerate sanctification in the Christian in a way that they would not normally grow apart from discipleship. In discipleship, man, you have to give everything you have. You give everything you have for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of that other person, including that 10 bucks for breakfast. Giving everything you have requires sacrifice on your part in all areas of your life. Your time, your relational capacity, your attention, your ear, your generosity, your comfort. And that's what Jesus did, right? He stepped out of heaven, put on flesh to be the good news of the gospel for us, even though we had no interest in him. Jesus gave us everything, including his life. Remember verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave us everything he had. There was no greater love that he could give. And to make disciples like Jesus did, we have to be willing to give our life away to people that we are discipling. The second greatest gift you can give somebody is yourself. You have the, you have the gift of, of attention. Give it to them. And the first, of course, is the gospel. The reality is that there are a number of people who sit in church every single week that could not tell you the message of the gospel. And if they don't know it, how can they believe it? The hard reality is that some people sitting in the pews or sitting in our hope group classrooms may not actually know Jesus. And there's some people in our hope groups and some people that come on Sunday mornings that are actually headed towards hell. Don't assume the gospel. And don't waste your time in their eternity by not giving them the gospel first. Discipleship requires quality time and it requires quantity time. And both are incredibly important. It takes time. For three years, the 12 disciples, they followed Jesus. But the time with Jesus in and of itself didn't make them disciples. The reason why they became disciples is that Jesus gave his life away to them. To make disciples like Jesus did, we have to be willing to give our life away to the people that we are discipling. The spring semester of my senior year of college, I, I think I, and I did the most spiritually worthwhile thing that I think I've ever done in my life. And it was this. I started a discipleship group. And it was called Biblical and Manly Faith with one of my best friends for the young men of the Christian organization that I, uh, that I was a part of. And we poured our life into eight freshmen and sophomores. And we selected these eight guys to be a part of the group for six months. And we associated our entire lives with them and challenged them to love Jesus like crazy. And they were not allowed to miss even a single meeting, or they are out of the group. And when we hung out with friends on Friday nights, we would invite them over to be with us. When we went on ministry calls, we took them with us and showed them how to care and to counsel people. When we went on dates, we took them along to show them how to be a godly man while dating a woman. Just kidding, we weren't that crazy, right? But we actually spent our lives on them, (laughs) investing in them. And we prepared by creating a killer Bible study for spring break with a ton of resources. And we went through the book called um, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace by James Montgomery Boyce. And we had them read a chapter every week. And we met on Wednesday nights to discuss in depth each chapter. And they turned in five-page papers every week for us to review each chapter, right, independently. And then we would grade them and hand them back and walk through the papers and and explain our explanations. We broke into small groups and met with uh, between like two and three of us together for two or three hours 
hours each week at a coffee shop to study the scriptures deeply by making our way through the book of Ephesians and also holding each other accountable, confessing sin and repenting. And they had to come prepared and we dove deep into the scriptures and we spent time with them, telling them everything we knew in the scriptures and ironing out sin patterns in their character and equipping them biblically and personally in an intimate setting. And over the course of the semester, you could see an obvious difference in these men. They fell more in love with Jesus. They developed a theological acumen, the ability to study the scriptures deeply. They became men of prayer. They began to focus their lives on the glory of God. They became changed men. But the best part of this group is that these men were disciples that made disciples. They stepped into the leadership of Bucks that next year and served as the, long, the youngest officer corps that they had in quite a long time. Out of the six elected officials, five of them came from that group. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to boast about that in Christ. They were our spiritual fruit. But let me be clear. The reason why that happened that way is because someone gave their life away to them. We sacrificed our lives to teach and to raise them up. It wasn't easy. We spent 15 hours a week on those and around those men. We didn't stop doing our other responsibilities. We just added that on top, but it was so worth it. We sacrificed our lives to teach and raise them up. And in turn, they continued to do the same. About three years ago now, I got a text from my best friend's little brother, and he had joined Bucks at Texas A&M, and he let me know that a senior active had reached out to him and asked him to join a Bible study that was centered around biblical and mainly faith. Now, I don't know that guy, and he didn't know me, but he knew Jesus' name. And he was discipled well by those who came before him, and hear me in this, your name will fade through time, but you can leave a gospel legacy. It's about the people you disciple. It's about the people you teach to love Jesus with everything they are. And I promise you that Jesus' name, Jesus' name will never fade in time. Our legacies, they're overrated, but his is not. Give them everything you have. And lastly, be their friend. Hear me in this, nobody wants to be discipled by you if they cannot be friends with you. No one wants to be viewed as your minion, right? The first step in discipleship is having a relationship. The process of Christian discipleship begins with the basis of friendship, the understanding that you love them and that they can trust you. Take time to develop that relationship with people that you're discipling and be their friend. Be authentic with them. They say that you see the fake world on social media all day long. Have funny jokes and, and, and moments with them. Those will cause serious moments to transformative moments to follow. And I don't know how many times I've heard it said that people aren't projects, and of course we are. But like Keith said last week, people just aren't your project. We are the project of the Holy Spirit, and we are all under construction and being sanctified. And you and I, we cannot play the role of the Holy Spirit in someone else's life to produce true heart change and life change. Only Holy Spirit can do that. And if you're lucky, he might use you in the process of doing so as an agent of change. And if so, praise God. But you're not their conscience or the Holy Spirit that lives inside of them, but you can be someone that they respect. Someone they want to be vulnerable with. Someone they can trust in their most shameful moments. You can be their friend. And disciples, man, they were Jesus' friend. In John 15, 14, Jesus is clear, you are my friends. 
We are his friends. Jesus is not our friend. He is not our homeboy. We are his friends. And the possessiveness of the language here intentionally indicates a hierarchy of importance within the relationship and shows that we have become friends with Jesus through, the, through his sacrifice. He has selected us and associated himself with us in the incarnation. Jesus came after us, and it's not the other way around. There's a possessiveness in this type of friendship that indicates that we belong to Jesus, that he established the relationship. And while there's a friendship between Jesus and his disciple, that, that, that friendship is rooted in Christ's pursuit, not the disciples. And in a discipleship relationship, friendship is orchestrated and initiated by you. You ask the first question. You do the reaching out. You take the initiative and drive that level of intentionality in the relationship. When I'm speaking about guys that, uh, man, I, I'm discipling, I always refer to them as my guys. Why? Because I feel a friendship towards them. They're a part of my group. And ultimately, because I have responsibility for them pouring into them. They're not simply my buddies. They're my crew. And I'm staking everything on them, just like Jesus did with his disciples. And we'll close tonight with kind of a cute story. One of the things the Lord taught me as a youth pastor <clears throat> for a number of years, man, is to intentionally initiate doing fun things with people because fun opens up the opportunity for deeper relationships with people. Isn't that true? And a few years ago, I took my uh, youth group to... Uh, BSR Water Park uh, up in Waco to go down a really huge slide, okay? And I'll admit, heights aren't really my thing. And that was a pretty big slide. I'm the dot right there, Woo, right? Not really, I found it on Google, but we can pretend, right? I had zero interest in going on this slide. But naturally, my guys tried to peer pressure me, and initially I resisted the bullying, but eventually I caved to the peer pressure of these 15-year-olds pulling me into doing a Roman 7 on myself and agreed to do the very thing I did not want to do, which was go down the big slide. <laughs> and a total youth pastor move, I agreed to go at the end of the trip so that I would only have to go once, right? You know what I'm talking about. And as the day was coming to a close, I find myself standing on a platform waiting for 2.15 to arrive, and a few of my boys are up there with me trying to cheer me on, and I'm letting people pass me left and right because I'm scared out of my mind, and I don't want to go twice. And while we're up there, another kid uh, asked one of my guys, Kasim, if he was going or if he could cut in line, and Kasim says, yeah, not yet. I'm waiting for my friend. Uh, my pastor to go down the slide. And a look of confusion came over his face as he glanced at me and it was almost as if he was wondering if I'd be offended. And I said to him, you're right, bro. I'm both. And then went down the slide. <laughs> Screamed my face off, right? Let me be clear. Because Sim and I don't hang out on Friday night and play Pokemon Go. We're not pals. That's a different thing. But he went on the trip in part because he knew I'd be going. And we got to talk about Jesus on the bus and go down an oversized slide together. Why? Because he knew that he was my friend and that I was his pastor. That friendship is the reason why he went to summer camp, where he heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus for the first time. And now he's discipling sixth graders. See, friendship helps grease the skids to get people from here to there in discipleship. Choose whom you will disciple wisely from the outset because they will become your fruit in Christ. Discipleship should accelerate sanctification in the Christian in a way that they would not normally grow apart from discipleship. But it's costly. It's costly. It takes time, effort, energy, and love. 
but it's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus invested in 12 men for three years, the most ragtag, beat up bunch of fishermen, tax collectors, and rebels that he could get his hands on. And he raised them up to take the gospel to the entire world. Jesus told his disciples everything that he knew. He gave them everything that he had, even his life. And he chose them as friends. See, discipleship was his plan to reach the entire world. He didn't have a plan B. And as he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, Jesus told them and us to go and do the same. Let's go out and make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. You are called. You are. You're called by Christ. And the lost and the spiritually immature, they're waiting. Let's go make disciples. Let's go make disciples of Jesus. Pray with me. God, I pray that we would take that charge. God, that we would hear just that call and the Great Commission. And that, Lord, you would light a fire in our hearts. God, if we haven't been making disciples already, Lord, I pray you'd motivate us to do that. God, if we, if we have, Lord, thank you. And, and at the same time, God, give us the, the ability to continue on the strength, to continue on the wisdom to know what to say next. Jesus, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done here in Cedar Park, Texas. God, we're asking that you would use us in this process. God, we are but broken instruments in your hands, but you make all things new. And God, I pray that you would allow us to be a part of that. God, that you would use us. So Jesus, we love you. We trust you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.